Please turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4. And as you're looking for Daniel chapter 4, let's stand together. So turn with me in your Bibles to Daniel chapter 4 and stand together. Now I want you to turn to the person next to you, whether you know them or not, and kind of shove them, just push them, make sure they're here this morning. Say, are you ready to study the word? Ask them, are you ready to study the word? All right, let's pray together now that we're all ready. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to study your word, and we invite your Holy Spirit into our time together, into our lives. Lord, help us to really understand the dangers of pride, see it in our lives, and really walk in humility with you. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. You can have a seat. The pain of pride. In Daniel chapter 4, we see this great, powerful king, Nebuchadnezzar, humbled by the Lord. His last words, his legacy, his testimony is that God knows how to humble those who walk in pride. Proverbs tells us, when pride comes, then comes shame. It's a promise of God. When pride enters our lives, then comes shame or disgrace. Also, Proverbs said, pride comes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. There is an article written by Desiring God pointing out a sermon from Jonathan Edwards of seven signs of pride. Because a lot of times in our lives, we don't see pride in us. It's been said that Pride, the only person that's not aware of it is the person that's suffering from the illness of pride. Everybody around us knows we're prideful, but I don't know I'm prideful. Maybe even already in these few minutes, you've said, this has got to be for somebody else. It couldn't be that God is going to challenge me on my pride this morning. So the first sign of pride was fault finding. Fault finding. If we're in a place where we're always finding the faults of others, that could be an indication of pride in our lives. Not seeing our own sin, but always seeing other people's sin. The second that's listed by Jonathan Edwards is a harsh spirit. If I just tend to deal with people in a harsh manner, not realizing how God has dealt with me in gentleness and and, in kindness, that can be an indication of, of pride. Number three, superficial, superficiality. We're in a place where we don't want to go deep with God and we don't want to go deep with others. In fact, we want to make sure that we protect this facade, this idea that we've got everything together, that there's not cracks and real sin in in my life. I'm going to keep it superficial can be an indication of pride. I think this is a really clear indicator, number four, is defensiveness. If you're defensive, if I'm, if I'm defensive, if I'm a, a person that can't be confronted by God and confronted by others, especially those that I know love me or are in a relationship with me. A person that's humble is secure and confident in Christ and can receive rebuke or correction. So if I know my identities in Christ, my position in Christ I don't have to get defensive. I could take a deep breath. Maybe ask someone you're in relationship with, am I a safe person for you to tell me how you feel? Am I a safe person for you to be able to confront? 
Presumption before God, number five, Jonathan Edwards points out, can be a a place of pride. What do we mean by this? Presumption before God is where we approach God without reverence. We we just presume that everything is is good with, with us and God. Humility approaches God with humble assurance in Christ. So it's, it's not that we walk in condemnation, guilt, or shame, but there's a reverence there and an assurance there in Christ. Pride is desperate for attention, number six. Pride is, is desperate for attention. Pride is hungry for attention, respect, and worship in all of its forms. If we find ourselves, I've got to be recognized. In a sense, I've got to be worshiped. People have to notice how hard I work. I'm not getting the recognition that I deserve at work. My spouse just does not notice that I unload the dishwasher, that I did the laundry. It could be an indication of pride. Pride number seven, it neglects others. Neglects others. Pride prefers some people over others. It honors those who the world deems worthy of honor giving more weight to their words, their wants, and their needs. If we rack them and stack them, we rack and stack people and say, this is someone who deserves my attention, but this person doesn't deserve my attention, that can be an indication of pride. Nebuchadnezzar, as we've been studying his life, is this great Babylonian king. God has been speaking to him for some time. It began with these four young men, Daniel, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Remember, they said, we're not going to eat of the king's table because God has called us to this specific diet. Nebuchadnezzar looks at these young men and goes, man, your countenance is more vibrant. Your intellect is sharper. They stood above all of the rest, and that was a testimony of God to Nebuchadnezzar. Then Nebuchadnezzar has his first dream. He wants his wise men to tell him the dream and the interpretation or he'll kill them. No one can do it. God reveals it to Daniel. Daniel gives the dream and the interpretation. And in that moment, Nebuchadnezzar has an encounter with the knowledge of God and he gives lip service to the Lord, but he doesn't respond. Fast forward to last week's study, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, they don't bow down to his gold image throws them in the fiery furnace, God supernaturally saves them, preserves them. And once again, Nebuchadnezzar gives lip service to the Lord. In his pride, he hasn't been responding to the revelation of God. And that's not a good place to be. If God has been speaking to you and revealing himself to you, but we've been hardening our hearts, that's gonna lead to a place of being humbled by the Lord. Let's begin in verse one of chapter four. Nebuchadnezzar the king to all peoples, nations, and languages that dwell in all the earth, peace be multiplied to you. What's interesting in what God is doing with Nebuchadnezzar and these four four men is God is getting his message out to the nations. As Nebuchadnezzar is humbled and he's giving his memoir of how God dealt with his life, notice who he sent it out to, to all peoples, all nations, all languages. He's the world-dominating leader. He's the most powerful man on the planet, and this tweet that he sends out gets to everybody. God has a way of getting the attention of the nations. God's missional. He wants every tongue and tribe to know of his goodness, of the gospel. 
verse 2, and I thought it good to declare the signs and wonders that the most most high God had worked for me. He's sharing how God got his attention, God's hand upon his life. How great are his signs and how mighty his wonders. His kingdom is everlasting and his dominion is from generation to generation. This is no longer just lip service to Nebuchadnezzar. His heart has been grabbed by God and he says, God is the one who rules. He's not seeing himself as the ultimate authority. And God's reign goes from generation to generation. He now describes first person how he got to this place, this conclusion. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at rest in my house and flourishing in my palace. It's all good for Nebuchadnezzar. He's been blessed. He's prosperous. He's got a beautiful home. He's resting, enjoying the football game, eating nachos, spinach dip. I mean, it's just going great. And I saw a dream which made me afraid, and the thoughts on my bed and the vision of my head trembled me. God, with a simple dream, can rock this man's world. He has no rest, and he's troubled. Therefore, I issued a decree to bring in all the wise men of Babylon before me, that they may make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the astrologers, the Chaldeans, and the soothsayers came in, and I told them the dream, but they did not make known to me its interpretation. But at last Daniel came before me. His name is Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. In him is the spirit of the holy God. And I told the dream before him, saying, once again, the stage is set for Daniel. The wise men can't interpret this dream. God's spirit's in Daniel. Nebuchadnezzar knows there's something special about Daniel, that God is in Daniel's life. Verse 9, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy God is in you and no secret troubles you, explain to me the vision of my dream that I have seen and its interpretation. He goes on to tell Daniel the dream. These were the visions of my head while on my bed. I was looking and behold a tree in the midst of the earth and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong. Its height reached to the heavens and it could be seen to the ends of all of the earth. So Nebuchadnezzar sees this amazing tree. It's tall and goes all the way to the heavens. Think Jack and the Beanstalk. Its leaves were lovely, its fruit abundant. And it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it. The birds of the heavens dwelt in its branches. And all the flesh was fed from it. Not only tall and strong, but fruitful. The food was going to all of the world. Many were coming and finding refuge in its shade. It was lovely. This tree was beautiful to look at. I saw in the vision of my head while on my bed, and there was a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven. He cried aloud and said thus, the watcher is an angel. And the angel's given the task of, of humbling Nebuchadnezzar. Here's what the angel is instructed. Chop down the tree and cut off its branches. Strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts get out from under it and the birds from its branches. So this tree's cut down. The stump remains. The fruit 
is gone and the beasts and the birds no longer have a place for, for refuge. Nevertheless, leave the stump and the roots in the earth bound with a band of iron and bronze and the tender grass of the field. Let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts on the grass of the earth. So the stump remains. In verse 16, let his heart be changed from that of a man. Let him be given the heart of a beast. Let seven times or seven seasons pass over him. Notice the change here. We're talking about a tree. Now we're talking about a person. And a person that is going to be made like a beast. In verse 17, this decision is by the decree of the watchers, the angels, and the sentence by the word of the holy ones, in order that the living may know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men, and it is to whom, whomever he will, and sets over it in the lowest of men. This is to be a testimony of, to Nebuchadnezzar, him being humbled, but it also it's a testimony to the whole world, that the whole world would know that the Most High rules over men. If you were to ask most people, they would say, oh, we think Nebuchadnezzar's in charge. And after this, they're going to come to understand that God's in charge and God rules over the kingdoms of men and he does what he pleases. Church, do you think this is applicable to October 1st, 2017? Absolutely. There is a lot of world tension. And we need to understand as believers, Putin's not the one in charge. You know, our leaders... And the United States are not in charge. You should be comforted this morning that Trump is not ultimately in charge, right? God is ultimately in charge. And as we think about this on a little bit deeper level, it is difficult and mind-blowing because we have this truth that God is sovereign and he's the one who is ultimately in charge, but then we also have man's free will and man's responsibility, So all of these leaders, all of these national and international leaders, they have the ability to make choices and to commit horrendous evil or tremendous good. And God holds them responsible for those decisions. Some choose to do evil, and we see that throughout world history, just just gross evil. And in that, God is able to take the evil and turn it for good. God's not the author of that evil, That's a result of their sinful choices. Don't we see that with Nebuchadnezzar? I mean, Nebuchadnezzar just made some downright evil tyrant decisions and took innocent people's people's lives. But God's not absent from the scene, and God's going to work in the midst of of that. And so there we find the tension. Here's man's responsibility, but God's sovereignty. I know that there's a lot to be concerned about on the world stage, but we need to be at a place of peace, knowing that God does rule, that God does reign. We're not indifferent. We're we're not in a place where we're being passive, but we're confident in the faithfulness of God. We go on into verse 18. This dream I, Nebuchadnezzar, have seen. Now you, Belteshazzar, declare its interpretation, since all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation but you are able, for the spirit of the holy God is in you. So he says, Daniel, because God is in you, you're going to be able to give me the interpretation of this dream. 
Verse 19, then Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, was astonished for a time, and his thoughts troubled him. Daniel knows exactly what this means. You've probably figured it out as well. Nebuchadnezzar is the tree, and he's going to get chopped down and going to be a beast in the field like a beast in the field. And here's Daniel, and he's like, man, I do not want to tell Nebuchadnezzar this. So Daniel just gets quiet, and he's troubled. Nebuchadnezzar goes on to say, so the king spoke and said, Belteshazzar, this is Daniel's Babylonian name, do not let the dream or its interpretation trouble you. Nebuchadnezzar says, give it to me straight. Just just tell me straight. We've all been there. Someone's got to tell us something that's difficult. And we come to perceive that it's hard for them to say it. It's deeply personal. Finally, we get the courage and we say, just tell me. Just just say it to me straight. I I need to hear what you're going to say. Belteshazzar answered and said, My Lord, may the dream concerning those concern those who hate you and its interpretation concern your enemies. Daniel's saying, I, I wish this was some for somebody else. I wish that this was for your, your enemies. I think that it's safe to say here that Daniel did really care for, for Nebuchadnezzar. That they've worked together. Daniel has become very influential in Babylon. And he's saying, I really don't wish this for you. I wish this was for your enemies. Verse 20, the tree that you saw which grew and became strong, whose height reached to the heavens and which could be seen by all the earth, whose leaves were lovely and its fruit abundant, and which was food for all, under which beasts of the field dwelt and whose branches the birds of the heaven had their home. It's you, O king, who have grown and become strong. For your greatness has grown and reached to the heavens and your dominion to the end of the earth. The trees is Nebuchadnezzar. An interesting example because you can plant a tree, you can water a tree, you can prune a tree, but only God can cause a tree to grow. God is the one who has given Nebuchadnezzar this position to where his empire is world-dominating. All of this fruit has come from God's hand. Every good and every perfect gift comes from God. And it's important for us to understand this in in our lives as well. You know, when we look at Nebuchadnezzar, it's very easy to see him falling prey to pride. But if God had given us this measure of success, influence, and prosperity, would we be able to handle it with humility? As we look especially at the kings of the Old Testament, the worst thing for their relationship with God and their souls was success. Many godly men were blessed by the Lord, had security, had influence, and over time there was this tendency in their heart, kings of Israel, to say, you know what, this is something that I've done. I'm a little bit different than everybody else. I've worked a little bit harder. I've followed the Lord a little bit more diligently. And so this is why God has allowed Israel to be so prosperous and pride entered their heart. And with Nebuchadnezzar and throughout all of the Bible, God's character is consistent. You can count on it. 
And there's many parts of God's character that are comforting, but there's some parts of God's character that should cause us to be concerned, and that is that God resists the proud. He's not a respecter of persons. He's not going to give us a get-out-of-jail-free card on this one. If we allow ourselves to begin to think, this is something that I've done. This is something that that I've worked for. So, So be careful when God blesses. This was the warning to the children of Israel when they came into the promised land. Deuteronomy, Moses is teaching and warning the generation that's going to take the promised land, saying, when you enter into the land, and God has given you all of this by his grace, don't depart from God. Don't don't allow pride to to enter into uh, your heart. So we go on in our text, verse 23. And inasmuch as the king saw a watcher, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave its stump and its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, let it be wet with the dew of heaven and let him graze with the beasts of the field till seven times pass over. It's interesting to me that the angel is called a watcher. Angels are watching. Peter writes and tells us that, that the angels, when, when Christ was born, were, were watching and looking intently and got their, got their attention. So here's this angel watching that's now been instructed to come and, and chop down Nebuchadnezzar and for him to become like a beast of the field. But notice, the stump's going to stay. The roots are going to stay. And this speaks of the restoration that God's going to bring in Nebuchadnezzar's life. Verse 24, this is the interpretation, O king, and this is the decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord the King, that they shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like an oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Verse 26, And inasmuch as they gave the command to leave the stump and its roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be assured to you after you come to know that heaven rules. This is the grace of God. This is the restoration of God. In the midst of Nebuchadnezzar hearing, look, here's your consequences for walking in pride. God is going to humble you. You're going to be as a beast of the field. I picture Daniel slowing down here and looking right into the eyes of Nebuchadnezzar and saying, once you realize that God's in control and everything has come from his hand, you're going to be restored. You're going to be restored. Why does God correct? Why does God discipline? Why does God humble? Is he a a vindictive God saying, you've been prideful, you've been walking independent of me, so now I'm going to get you and I'm going to knock your legs out from underneath you? Not at all. He knows that pride destroys our relationship with him and destroys those that we love. And he's gently, lovingly correcting us so that he can restore us, so that he can bring grace in in our lives. God resists the humble, or he resists the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. Once Nebuchadnezzar is humble and broken before God, then God's going to restore him. In verse 27, Therefore, king, let my advice be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by being righteous and your iniquities by showing mercy to the poor. Perhaps there may be a lengthening 
of your prosperity. Stop sinning by being righteous. Stop sinning and show mercy to the poor. That's Daniel's advice. Daniel knows that God's merciful, and he's saying, Nebuchadnezzar, walk with the Lord. God may choose to be merciful. God may choose to extend your time of prosperity. Notice what happens. And this came upon Nebuchadnezzar at the end of the 12 months. He was walking about the royal palace of Babylon. 12 months is just long enough to forget this whole thing. This crazy dream, Daniel given the interpretation, Things are not going to be the way that they are. And he's, he's cruising around his, his palace of Babylon, looking at the majesty and the beauty and all that he's been able to accomplish. He's a self-made man. Then the king spoke saying, is not this great Babylon that I have built for a royal dwelling by my mighty power and for the honor of my majesty? Let's dissect this a little bit. What does he say? First, he says, this is awesome, you know? This rocks. And second, I've done this. I have accomplished this by my power, by my hand, by my hard work. And by the way, it's for my glory. It's for my majesty. It's for people to understand how great I am, all right? And this is inside all of our hearts, this, this danger of pride. And when you look around at the blessing in your life, is there a tendency to say, I've done this? If God's blessed your marriage and you have a healthy marriage, is there, is there a part of you that goes, you know, my wife and I have put in a lot of work. We make a lot of time for each other. We communicate with each other. We're experts at love and respect. I mean, in fact, we even teach it to others. You know, I kind of like the palace that we've built in our holy matrimony with, with one another. And this is our legacy. This is our legacy project. And our kids and grandkids and, well, in fact, the whole church in Colorado Springs, not just Rocky Mountain Calvary, is going to know how hard we worked. And then we tend to, well, you know, I don't know why other couples just can't get it. They, I mean, God sums up marriage in one paragraph. Watch out. Watch out. Because what's the truth? We're sinners. And if your marriage is healthy, that is God's grace. That is God's grace. And if you're able to walk in the truths of God's word, that's God's working in your life. Let's be honest, if we followed around any married couple in our church for seven days, we would go, you know what? You're a sinner and your spouse is a sinner and every good thing in your life is the Lord. True? Amen? That's right? Okay. There's something in us that wants to do exactly what Nebuchadnezzar did. Maybe there's some financial strength in your life. And God has blessed your job and, and you tend to want to walk around your job and go, whoa, look what I've done. Look how hard that I've worked. This is for my honor and for my glory. Well, wait a second. God's given you the job. God's given you the health to be able to go to work. God's given you the ability to do it. Do you know that you are hardwired with some gifts? Where did those gifts come from? That came from the Lord. That came from God working in your life. So we always want to be very careful 
to not take God's glory, to give credit where credit's due, and say, man, the Lord has done this. I want God to, to be glorified in this. This wasn't my, my hard work. What should our legacy be? I'm a sinner. God loves sinners. Jesus sent his son to die for me, this sinner, and has blessed my life because of his grace. If there's anything good in my life, it's because of, of God's grace. Well, as soon as Nebuchadnezzar says this, look out. While the word was still in the king's mouth, a voice fell from heaven. King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. Woo! The angels are saying, things are going to change today. And they shall drive you from men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. They shall make you eat grass like oxen. And seven times shall pass over you until you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives it to whomever he chooses. Have you noticed the repetition of that in our passage? God's getting the point across. That very hour the word was fulfilled concerning Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from men and he ate grass like an oxen. His body was wet with dew of heaven till his hair had grown like eagle's feathers and his nails like bird's claws. From every indication, Nebuchadnezzar loses his mind. We'll see after the seven seasons have passed over him that God restores to him his understanding. And in this place where he's out of his mental state, he becomes like a beast of the field, like an oxen. And he's just eating grass. He's, he's humbled you know, interestingly enough, now people pay money to eat grass. You know, we grow, we grow wheat grass and we're like, oh, we're going to eat it and blend it up and stuff like this. But this was not dietary, you know. This is an example of God humbling us. Even in our culture, we use this expression of, of eat grass, right? It's, it's humble pie. Here he is just as a beast of the field without his understanding eating grass. You know, fingernails, they're meant to be trimmed. When, you know, ladies, there's a point where they're attractive, but when they start to curl, you know, I remember being a kid and looking in the Guinness Book of World Records, and some guy had the longest fingernails, and that image has never left my mind. <laughs> and, and here's Nebuchadnezzar. He, he's so out of it mentally, he's, he's not even taking care of, of his, his fingernails. Much of Nebuchadnezzar's character in his pride was beast-like. Wouldn't you agree? Just destroying people, giving no thought to people, only concerned about himself and his greatness. And God's really allowing his true nature to be seen and, and to, to be lived out in, in this moment. In verse 34, And at the end of the time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my understanding returned to me, and I blessed the Most High and praised and honored him who lives forever. After the seven seasons, it seems to be seven winters, seven springs, seven summers, seven falls. He lifts his eyes to heaven, God gives him his understanding, and now he begins to worship, and he acknowledges the Most High. He acknowledges God's position in his life puts himself in the proper place, no longer lip service, for his dominion is ever, an everlasting dominion, and his kingdom is from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are reputed as nothing, 
He does according to his will in the army of heaven and among the inhabitants of the earth. No one can restrain him or say to him, what have you done? He understands God's unlimited ultimate authority. And at the same time, my reason returned to me and for the glory of my kingdom, my honor and splendor returned to me. My counselors and nobles resorted to me and I was restored to my kingdom and excellent majesty was added to me. This is something only God can do. This is God's supernatural work of restoration as Nebuchadnezzar turns to the Lord. If you went crazy for seven years and you were put out to pasture eating grass like a cow with crazy fingernails and Frankenstein hair, do you think you would get your job back after you returned to your right mind? I can tell you I would not get my job back. <laughs> We'd be like, he's gone crazy. We got a new pastor. We can't trust that guy, right? And, and here, Nebuchadnezzar is the most powerful man in the world. And it was in the heart of his counselors to accept him back. This was God's restoration. The stump remained. And they could see that Nebuchadnezzar was in his right mind. God doesn't give us detail, but what was Nebuchadnezzar like after he was broken? What kind of a leader was he at the end of his life compared to what he was like early in his life? Now, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the king of heaven, all of whose works are true and his ways justice. And those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. His last words recorded for us in scripture. Those who walk in pride, he is able to put down. If God has been revealing himself to you, you need to respond. Maybe you look back at your life and you go, you know what? God has been showing me that he's real. God has been speaking to me that he sent his son to die for my sins and rose again. I even understand that I'm a sinner and I'm fallen short, but yet you haven't trusted Christ for salvation. You haven't surrendered your heart and life to Christ. In just a moment, I want to give you an opportunity to receive Christ as your Savior, to raise your hand to Christ, to surrender your heart, and say, I'm ready to surrender myself to Christ. Respond to that knowledge. We want to sincerely give all, God all of the credit. Understand that God gives grace to the humble. Church, what's the road moving forward? Please stay with me for just two more minutes. Because I feel like this is such an important passage, the pain of pride. What's, what's the way forward? How do we walk in humility? It's one thing to hear a message like this, but how do we prevent pride in our life? The first is, and it's kind of gutsy, is ask God sincerely to re reveal pride in your life, in my life, in my heart. Say, God, I realize how dangerous pride is, and would you show me pride in my life? Psalms 139 says, search me and know me and try me and see if there's any wicked way in me. I would invite you, encourage you to do that for two weeks. Do it for two weeks, not just today. Make it a point and say, God, if there's pride in my heart and my life, would, would, you, would you show me? We may be surprised what God begins to speak to us. And then as he reveals pride, confess it to God and confess it to men. Lord, I am prideful in this area. Go to those that are close to you that you trust in your brothers and sisters in Christ and say, God is dealing with me in this area of pride. 
And if we're having a hard time doing it, that's confirmation that we're prideful. Because we want to keep everything superficial. We want everybody to think well, well of us. And then I think that the key in our lives to walking in humility is being in worship. Because worship and pride can't coexist together. When I worship the Lord, I'm putting him in his proper place. And I'm understanding my place before God. I'm understanding my need for grace. If, th- if there's an absence of worship in my life, it could be a good indicator that pride is starting to sneak in or pride is completely overtaken. So we want to worship the Lord. We want to be in awe of the cross and what Christ has done for us. And that worship is the best protection from pride. So let's pray together. Father, we thank you for your love. We thank you for the truth of scripture. We ask that you would speak to us right now. Lord, for those that have never surrendered their heart and life to Christ, we pray that you would touch them with your love through the power of the Holy Spirit. If you've never believed the gospel, which is that Jesus died for your sins and rose again, and you go, God has been revealing himself to me at different points in my life, and you'd like to receive Christ as your Savior, what are you saying yes to? You're saying yes to Jesus that you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again. Right now, would you raise your hand and and leave it up? And I'm going to say a simple prayer with you. More importantly, you're going to pray from your heart. If you'd like to receive Christ, just go ahead and raise your hand and leave it up. We'll just wait for a few moments. Praise the Lord. I see both of your hands in the back. All three of you there, praise God. Anybody else that says, that's me, I, I need to receive Christ as my Savior. Praise the Lord, I see your hand here as well. With your hands raised, pray this prayer with me. Jesus, I believe that you're God, that you died for my sins and rose again. I turn from my sin and receive your forgiveness. I invite you to be the Lord of my life. You can put your hands down. Father, we know the angels rejoice when one person comes to know you. We rejoice. We pray that you'd bless those that have responded to the gospel. In Jesus' name, amen.